History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. Gamarjoba, my name is Roberto, and I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Sacartvelo, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Kartveli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps, most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture, pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sacardvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacardvelo, Georgia. You can find us on Twitter at History underscore Georgia. Sacardvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hi everybody, uh, Trevor here. If everything worked the way it's supposed to, you only heard one ad before this episode. That's because the second one is actually going here and it needs a bit of a disclaimer. It's an ad for me. And more information will be coming into the History of Persia feed in the coming weeks. But the important thing to know for now is that this absolutely does not change the priority of History of Persia. The show is not ending. New episodes will continue coming out as often as I can get to them. But this is another project that I have been working on and am very excited to launch on February 29th. So, without further ado. If you're listening to this, you probably know that the United States of America gets involved in a lot of foreign wars. We all know the big ones, World War One, World War II, Korea, sort of. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq again. 
But before and in between all that, the story a lot of us heard in school is that the U.S. military didn't get out much. Turns out, that's kind of a blatant lie. I'm gonna guess a lot of us don't know about the multiple Spanish-American wars, the wars that led up to the Battle of Little Bighorn, or the baffling number of times we invaded Mexico. Odds are, you've never even heard of things like the time the Marines invaded Taiwan or the Oconee Wars. I'm Trevor Cully, host of the new podcast America Secret Wars, where I am going to sit down with a guest in each episode and dive into the history of all the forgotten and overlooked times that the United States deployed military force against other nations. You can find America Secret Wars at secretwarspod.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Coming on February 29th, 2024, and releasing every other week thereafter. So officially now, hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, episode 118, Dead Men's Rest. Before we begin in earnest, I just want to remind everyone to get their questions in, either by direct message on social media, the contact page at historyofpersiapodcast.com, or emailing historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com for the episode 125 Q&A to wrap up the Achaemenid era. So, last time, we followed the armies of Alexander the Great as they marched into India for the first time. Alexander fought his way along the Kafen River, defeating the native inhabitants around the Khyber Pass and seizing the fortress of Aornos, before reaching the great Indian city of Taxila in modern Pakistan. From there, they traveled still further east, potentially beyond the bounds of the old Persian Empire, and crossed the Hidaspes River to battle Porus, a local Indian king who was defeated but able to secure significant concessions from Alexander. When we left off, Porus and King Omphis of Taxila were assisting Alexander and his generals as they planned a campaign through the northern Punjab. They set out from Porus's capital, possibly the city Alexander had rechristened as Nikaya, a month after the Battle of the Hydaspes, with about 30,000 of the nearly 50,000 troops that had followed Alexander across the Hindu Kush the rest staying behind to solidify Macedonian control in recently conquered territories. First, they marched on a minor kingdom to Porus's northeast, inhabited by a people called the Glauci. They may actually have been Porus's vassals that had to be reintegrated following Porus's submission, 
because all 37 of their towns and cities surrendered without a fight. They halted in the Glauci capital for a while to receive envoys from both east and west. Abissaris, a king of some minor territory in modern Kashmir, arrived to submit himself to Alexander. Initially, Abissaris had intended to ally with Porus to drive back the invaders, but since Porus himself had fallen, Abissaris couldn't resist the Macedonians on his own. Thus, he surrendered himself and his kingdom. Simultaneously, a Persian, Fratifernes, Alexander's satrap in Parthia, arrived with well-rested Thracian troops that had been left in northeastern Iran and were cycling back into active duty. They also received word that the Asakenians, who Alexander had conquered in the Khyber Pass, assassinated their Macedonian governor and went into rebellion. So Alexander sent two of his minor generals back with a detachment of the main army to quell the revolt. We don't hear much more about that uprising other than the fact that it was defeated. The lord of all Asia also sent Porus back to his own kingdom to raise an army to recoup the Macedonian conquering force's strength and left Coinus behind as a Macedonian overseer while the bulk of the army crossed the Chenob River in pursuit of an entirely different local king named Porus, who had initially been allied with our Porus, but was now fleeing back to his own territory. They crossed between the Chenob and Ravi rivers before reaching the second Porus's kingdom, which surrendered outright upon seeing the size of the army bearing down on them. You will notice that pattern today. Hephaestion was sent out to deal with any remaining resistance in the area, while Alexander went even further east, attacking and defeating or enslaving any tribes and independent towns that refused to submit to his rule. By this time, Alexander of Macedon, lord of all Asia, king of kings, sort of, and whatever, was clearly getting tired of having to conquer people. Which is funny because he's extending his power into unconquered territory. But over the course of this latter part of the Indian campaign, Alexander took an extremely hostile approach to anybody who didn't submit outright. As he saw it, he had defeated the Persian Empire, and so the Indus Valley region now belonged to him and its inhabitants had to submit. But as we discussed in the last episode, not all of these kingdoms had probably been part of the Persian Empire. He was conquering minor independent satellite states. And they had no reason to surrender if they thought they had the forces to withstand the attack. And since this was such an alien invader to them, many of them didn't understand the scale or scope of who this Alexander was. But from the western bank of the Ravi River, Alexander moved north toward another center of resistance, the city of Sangala, modern Sikh el in Pakistan. 
According to Arian, the locals identified themselves as Cathayans and had every intention of remaining free of Macedonian domination. The Cathayans arranged themselves for battle on a small hill leading up to Sagala. They set up wagons as makeshift defenses to disrupt any attempt to charge at them, but Alexander's forces took up their standard formation anyway. Long rows of infantry blocks standing between two wings of cavalry with the Lord of All Asia himself commanding the right flank. The Saka horse archers recruited in Central Asia rode along between the two lines firing arrows at the Cathayans to ward off any downhill charge. When Alexander led the first tentative cavalry charge up the hill, he was surprised. Rather than facing a spear block or a counter charge, the Cathayan archers climbed on top of their improvised defenses and started shooting down at him from on top of the wagons. The Hatairoi and their horses returned to their formation and Alexander dismounted. He grabbed his infantry equipment and joined the Hippospists, leading an infantry charge instead intending to dislodge the archers from their wagons and clear the way. The charge was successful, forcing the Cathayans back into Sangala's walls as the Macedonians prepared for a siege. The city was surrounded by tall fortifications, save for the part that bordered a large lake. Alexander sent his cavalry out to watch the far side of the lake and hunt down anybody who attempted to escape by boat. The rest of the Macedonians prepared to encircle and assault Sangala itself. They set up their own stockade outside the walls to defend from archers inside the city, but deliberately left one portion unblocked, with Ptolemy stationed just behind the nearest stockade to ambush any Cathayan forces that tried to sneak around the siege lines. Partway through the attack on Sangala, Porus arrived with his own forces, elephants included, and the Macedonian siege weapons that had been left behind in Nikaia. However, he was just a few hours too late. While Porus's men were still setting up the siege engines, a Macedonian effort to undermine the brick foundation of the walls worked and enough of the structure gave way for ladders to be propped up and easily climb inside the city. Apparently, the fighting inside was a slaughter, with thousands dead, presumably largely civilians, cut down as the Macedonians sacked the strange and foreign town, because Arian only reports a hundred dead on the Macedonian side. That said, many Macedonians were reported as wounded, most notably including Lysimachus, a Thessalian, serving in Alexander's personal guard. Alexander's personal assistant, Eumenes of Cardia, was sent out with a detachment to demand surrender from the cities that had supported Sangala. Many of these townspeople had just fled after hearing about the destruction of Sangala, and Eumenes executed any refugees he managed to track down from the cities that had surrendered. After Eumenes' return, Alexander proceeded east toward the Hephaestus River, the modern Bias. As the Lord of All Asia saw it, there was more India to the east, 
and therefore more Asia for him to conquer and dominate. However, his soldiers held a very different opinion. They were now farther east than any Greek had ever been, at least to their knowledge, and even further than any Persian army had ever conquered. They had succeeded in destroying their ancient rivals in Persia in their entirety. They had succeeded in claiming every inch of formerly Persian territory they set foot in. These men had not set out from Greece, Macedon, Thrace, or the myriad satrapies of the former Persian Empire to conquer India. Worse still, they now had intelligence provided from Indian kings like Omphis and Porus that had joined the army. Word had already spread among the Greek soldiers that, beyond the Hephaestus, they would enter the territory claimed by the Nanda Empire, with its capital far, far to the east in Pataliputra on the great river Ganges. And these men knew their king well enough. They knew that he would not settle for carving out just a little bit of the western Ganges Valley. Once Alexander got the taste of a new enemy, everyone knew that he would stop at nothing until he had conquered all of India, which turned out to be much larger than the Greeks had previously realized. More importantly, many of the men had just been away for so long. Some of them had families back in Europe. Some had wives they had met along the way. They were tired homesick, and ready to return to their lives, or at the very least take a few years to rest before Alexander noticed some sort of appealing campaign back in the east. The king summoned his officers and begged them to reinvigorate their troops, arguing that they couldn't possibly secure the borders of their new empire if they left such a great threat unconquered. To Alexander, the only reasonable course of action was to conquer everything, all the way to what he called the Eastern Sea at the far end of the world. He simply did not know or understand how big the world really was. They thought they would get to Pataliputra and find it close to the great ocean the Greeks thought encircled the whole world. They didn't know how far South India actually extended, nor did they know about the jungles of Southeast Asia, or China beyond that. If Alexander had his way, they would have kept finding new enemies to fight until he died. His commanders agreed with the soldiers. They told him that the men fully refused to continue east. They were done with expansion in that direction. Nobody was quite willing to say it explicitly at the time, but it was a mutiny or maybe more accurately, a strike. They wouldn't budge until Alexander agreed to begin the journey home. The Lord of all Asia was magnanimous in this domestic defeat, giving a speech to his soldiers, praising them for all that they had accomplished, and directing them to construct 12 altars to the 12 Olympian gods of ancient Greece on the banks of the river to mark the conquest of of an army of Greeks at their greatest extent, 
Today, these altars are often identified with a series of grandiose structures northeast of modern Delhi. And now, it's time to follow the Macedonian army on its journey home, which is where we will pick up right after some ads. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Now, even as the Greeks started working their way home, their poor grasp of world geography was still set to hand them another disaster. They had seen crocodiles in the rivers, and came to the conclusion that the Nile River actually wrapped all the way around the southern side of the world. So they would simply build boats and sail down the Hephaestus until they reached Egypt. Alexander and a chunk of the army boarded small ships that were constructed to navigate the waterways, while Craterus took command of a portion of the troops, set to march alongside as defenses on the western bank, while Hephaestion took the elite troops, including their new elephant corps, to defend from any attacks out of the unconquered east. Porus was sent home as Alexander's vassal king in all the newly conquered Indian lands. However, it was not all celebratory. While they were embarked along the Hephaestus, General Coinus, 
who had proved so instrumental in all of Alexander's major victories since arriving in Bactria, fell victim to some tropical disease and died. Maybe malaria, maybe typhus, who knows. Of course, now that they were moving south, they crossed through still more unconquered territory, where the inhabitants, a combination of pastoralist tribes and minor city-states, were none too happy to hear that they were being absorbed into a new empire. However, most of these people were not strong enough to put up noteworthy resistance, until they reached the Malians and the Oxidraci, two of the more organized and populous states in the southeastern Punjab. These two kingdoms exchanged political hostages with one another, forming an alliance against the approaching Agiad army on the Hidaspes River. In November of 326, Alexander's scouts discovered this alliance and informed their king who promptly ordered his forces to march on the Malians with speed. November is still the monsoon season, and this stretch of river, where the Hidaspes joins the Chenab and the Ravi, is rough water at the best of times. The Malians probably thought they had more time to prepare, but Alexander reached their borders in just five days despite the rapids damaging several ships beyond repair and even killing a few Macedonian soldiers who sunk or went overboard. It took a few additional days for the forces under Craterus, Hephaestion, and Perdiccas to catch up by land, but once they did, Alexander sent his forces to attack two Malian towns. The first was briefly besieged under Alexander's command before falling to a gruesome massacre after the defenders took refuge in the enclosed foundations of their own walls. The second town's inhabitants evacuated as Perdiccas approached, but he had the cavalry forces to overtake them, leading to another massacre of the Malian townspeople as they attempted to flee. The Macedonians repeated this process all across the Malian and Oxidraci territory, essentially everything between the Hidaspes and the convergence of the Ravi and Chenab rivers. The exact commanders and units changed as did the specific siege techniques, but honestly, it's not worth getting into detail. It's the same sequence of siege and slaughter a half dozen times. Plus, none of the usual sources give us the exact same sequence of sieges and refugee hunting, so some of them are probably duplicate accounts anyway that just change some names around. As they worked through the Malian territory, Alexander also dispatched several commanders back north and into the west to hunt down and subjugate any cities or tribes that still resisted or hadn't yet even heard about Macedonian rule. We don't hear much about these, and we can assume just on reputation and force of numbers that most of them decided to surrender to Alexander without a fight. The real clash of note in the Malian campaign was Alexander's assault on the Malian capital. 
possibly modern Multan. Initially, about 40 or 50,000 Malians rallied outside of their city, but they routed at the first Macedonian charge, and even when they managed to get it together and stand against the phalanx, cutting them down, the arrival of Alexander's light infantry caused them to break and flee into the city. Naturally, the Macedonians enforced a siege. Alexander and his Hippospist officers were the first over the walls, scaling them with simple improvised climbing ladders as their ranged troops held the defenders back. Except, after Alexander and the officers got to the battlements, the ladders collapsed behind them. The king and just a handful of nobles were the only Macedonians to make it inside the city. For a moment, Alexander stood in all his splendor, raising a sacred shield from the temple of the goddess Athena in Athens, a.k.a. the Parthenon. He was trying to instill confidence and excitement in his troops. Arian really plays this up and then does his very best to valorize the fact that every Malian archer in the city turned their bows on Alexander and peppered the wall with arrows, forcing the Lord of All Asia to panic, duck, and seek cover, realizing that standing as a giant target to inspire his men may not have been a good idea. However, this too really speaks to Alexander's mindset at this point. Even though his men had demanded to return home, even though his attempt to break the siege of this city had mostly failed, he felt like he could do no wrong. He was starting to believe his own hype. This is where the story starts to bridge the gap from Alexander's general track record of reckless heroics and self-aggrandizement over to barely believable mythological hero stuff. Which, if it actually went down this way, and none of our sources contradict it, was the point. Alexander grew up on stories of how he personally was descended from Achilles, the hero of the Iliad, how he personally was descended from Heracles, the greatest of Greek heroes. He claimed to be a literal demigod. So the lord of all Asia and his officers leaped from the wall into the city's central citadel and fended off the garrison in a flurry of swordplay and spear fights. Except the Malians had missile troops. In a matter of minutes, they went from heroically battling like the heroes of old to overwhelmed by arrows and javelins that immediately killed several of Alexander's companions. Then, the lord of all Asia himself was shot by an arrow. At long distances, like on a battlefield, Ancient military bows could still generate devastating enough power to pierce a thin layer of bronze on a shield, but en masse, they really relied on sheer quantity of missiles finding gaps in the enemy armor. However, at close range, like inside the courtyard of a central citadel, 
it was a different story. That arrow punched straight through Alexander's breastplate and into his lung. The king dropped like a sack of lead weights, while his remaining officers desperately tried to cover him with their shields and fend off the Malians. Meanwhile, the Macedonian army had thrown caution to the winds once they saw their king disappear over the battlements. With improvised climbing equipment and little regard for actually surviving the attack, the soldiers scaled the walls, fought back the defenders, and opened the gates for the rest of the army to barge in and assault the fort. Some jumped down into the fortress to join Alexander's guards and add their shields to the defense of Alexander's limp body while the army outside got the gates open. Once they did, word of Alexander's apparent impending doom spread through the ranks, and the Macedonian soldiers were out for blood. They killed every Malian they could find in the capital, while the king was pulled away for battlefield surgery. Lucky for Alex, he regained consciousness just in time for the surgeon to cut into his lungs and remove the arrow, immediately passing out again. By this point, detachments of the army were spread out all over the region as well, those ones who went off to secure surrender from the surrounding area. And the soldiers who weren't at the Malian capital thought Alexander had died by the time they rejoined the main force. The king was in and out of consciousness, then bedridden for days. When it was announced that he would survive, many of the common soldiers thought it was a lie by the officer corps to maintain order. So Alexander, barely able to breathe or even stay conscious, dragged himself into a horse's saddle and rode out through the camp to calm the descent spreading through his ranks. Following the wholesale massacre of several cities, the remaining Indians in the region submitted. Also, perhaps unsurprisingly, the Macedonians generally decided against carrying out warfare as they made their way down the rest of the Indus Valley. Though with all the bloodshed in Malian territory, most of the Indian city-states they passed through simply surrendered when they heard Alexander was on his way. As they sailed down the Indus, Alexander ordered the contingents that had been marching by land to head west and travel through Aracosia and Drangiarna, then head for Persia itself by way of Carmania, modern Kerman, because he intended to sail with his admiral, Nearchus, down the Indus and into the Indian Ocean to find their way back to the Persian Gulf, because the locals had clued them into the fact that there was a full ocean between them and Africa. Obviously, the land forces couldn't just march alongside the river the whole way anymore, so they were going to depart and travel through the mostly hospitable and already conquered territory of central Iran. The Malian campaign and the voyage downriver took most of early 325 BCE, meaning it was monsoon season again by the time they actually reached the Indian Ocean, and unsafe for sailing long distances. Alexander stopped at Patala, near modern Baruch, and 
ensured that ample supplies were in place for Nearchus and his sailors through the monsoon season, because they still wanted to get all those ships back to Persis. However, Alexander had recovered enough by that point for an overland journey. The half of the Macedonian army that was still with him followed Alexander west along the southern coast of Pakistan and into Iran. Along the way, they encountered more peoples and former Achaemenid vassals who hadn't technically submitted yet, and there were a couple of times where they thought there might be a battle, but they all surrendered on Alexander's approach. Even with most of the army already en route to Persis, Alexander was seen as too formidable to oppose. They marched into Gedrosia, modern Iranian Balakistan. This was the last sliver of Achaemenid Iran that Alexander hadn't even touched, and he had heard legendary stories of Cyrus the Great traversing Gedrosia that he wanted to emulate so it's understandable why he may have wanted to go that way. But there's also a reason that they didn't go that way in the first place. Gedrosia was, and to a certain degree still is, a sparsely populated, dry, hot, inhospitable desert. And Alexander made no preparations for that whatsoever. They didn't pack extra water reserves, they didn't pack sufficient rations, or establish any kind of supply line back to Patala to ferry those much-needed provisions down the main column. They just blindly marched into the desert. They didn't even have directions. The Phoenician sailors that were marching with them had to navigate by the stars. Animals and people alike dropped like flies through a combination of starvation, thirst, and heat exhaustion. They foraged or pillaged whatever they could in areas where that was an option, but it was nowhere near enough. On top of it all, southeastern Iran also gets hit by the monsoon season. But without a river or regular rainfall the rest of the year to nourish the soil, it was hard-packed earth. So when a monsoon storm came in and dumped rain further inland, the resulting deluge created a flash flood in the camp followers section of the Macedonian line, drowning many of the women and civilian support staff that accompanied the army. By the time they reached Pura, the capital of the Gedrosian satrapy, some estimates place the death toll as high as 12,000 people, the largest loss of any of Alexander's campaigns by far, and possibly the same number as the total number of deaths they had suffered in the entire conquest of the Persian Empire, all because Alexander led his men blindly into inhospitable terrain. At Pura, the survivors resupplied and were able to progress safely back into Carmania, where Alexander declared another Alexandria should be built to settle some of his veterans and celebrate their crossing of the desert. 
In Carmania, he met up with the rest of his army that had gone back through Ericosia and took in some intelligence reports. It was mostly the usual shuffling around of governors as Alexander worked out what exactly he wanted this empire to look like, but it also included a report that Philip, the Macedonian satrap left in northern India, had been assassinated by his own mercenaries. The king sent immediate orders for Omphis and his Macedonian overseers in Taxila to quell the revolt, which they did. It also included one of the most disastrous reports for a Caymanid historical posterity. When Alexander had left Persepolis as a smoking ruin, he had given explicit instructions that the tombs of the Achaemenid kings were not to be disturbed, nor were any of the Iranians' sacred sites. His orders had not been heeded in his absence. The Macedonian officers left in Persis and the Persian government itself had neglected their responsibilities or simply allowed their people to ransack not only the tombs of Artaxerxes II and III at Persepolis, but also to scale Nakshe Rostam and plunder the tombs of the earlier kings as well. Alexander ordered that these officers, and another who had looted a temple near Susa, all be executed. But the damage was done, the corpses defiled, and relics we can only imagine were lost to time. Alexander and his closest friends and officers made the journey back toward Persia, ultimately planning to take up residence in Susa very slowly, with the king and his friends traveling in a large open-topped carriage. Hephaestion was sent ahead with the bulk of the army itself to make suitable arrangements for stopping over somewhere in Persia, which was only an issue because they had already destroyed the obvious candidate at Persepolis. They went with the Persians' own backup palace at Pasargadai instead. When Alexander reached Pasargadai, he discovered that Phraesoortes, the Persian that had been installed as satrap of the Macedonian province of Persis, had died several months earlier. In his stead, one of the Persian lieutenants, Orxenes, had been acting as the interim satrap and plundering temples and palaces for his own enrichment. Orxenes was executed. Alexander also met with Atropides of Media, who had recently arrested another Median noble that tried to stage a coup and declare himself an independent king of the Medes. Well, there's an idea we haven't heard in a long time. Naturally, Alexander ordered the would-be rebels execution as well. For years, Alexander had actually planned to visit Pasargadai when his war was over, and now that he was finally there, he was distraught. See, the king's goal had been to visit the tomb of Cyrus the Great, but like Naksha Rostam, even Cyrus's mausoleum had been plundered while the lord of all Asia was away. All that remained was the table where Cyrus's golden sarcophagus once sat. By then, it was gone and melted down with Cyrus's body lost to time. 
Alexander had the Magi charged with caring for the tomb, arrested and tortured to identify a specific culprit, but they either wouldn't or couldn't identify the criminal. So, naturally, Alexander had them all executed. Distraught by all this damage, Alexander appointed Peucestus, a hypospist officer who had done the most to guard his king during the final Malian battle, as the new satrap of Persis, and charged him with restoring the palaces and gardens of Pasargadai. Then, Alexander departed for Susa, only to discover that Abulites, the satrap he'd left there, had also been pillaging his own territory for personal enrichment, and had to be put to death before the king could take up residence in the palace of Darius for spring 324 BCE. But what comes next is a series of stories better suited for another time. Oh, thank God. I'll be honest with you, everybody. I am sick and tired of Alexander the Great. Especially toward the end here, it's just siege after siege after battle with minimal detail for most of these eastern confrontations. It gets boring to read and write, even if Alexander himself is an interesting figure. And I'm guessing a lot of you are getting a bit tired of hearing about it. I can already say with certainty that I'm not even looking forward to editing this one because it means I have to hear about it again. If you're in this boat with me, good news, we're done. With Alexander safely back in Susa, the story of Macedonian conquest is complete, at least for a while. So speaking of boats, we're gonna take a break in the next episode and follow Admiral Nearchus on his own trip back to the Persian Gulf. Then we get to talk about some of the other stuff Alexander did, like actually ruling his empire instead of conquering it, and some stuff that never came to pass. Until then... If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to 
the history of Persia. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.